Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 39th edition of Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, a health special supported by Palantir. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening here at the IFG and online. Or rather, Norswaitha Ichigid, a Chroisel i Data Bytes, Gwaithio Gada Data, Mount Clewodraith. Yes, Deed Goyle Dewi Hapis, a happy St. David's Day to you all. The Welsh men's rugby team nearly marked the occasion by going on strike during the Six Nations before deciding to play after all, though you'd be forgiven for not being able to tell the difference. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Databytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Databytes. Welcome. As ever, we have four brilliant presenters for you this evening, packing more insight into eight minutes than you'll find in 2.3 million words of Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages. <laughs> Though we meet in unusual circumstances tonight, in the midst of a widely welcomed development in negotiating Brexit. You might call it a turnip for the books. <laughs> Let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. On social media, it's hashtag IFGDataBytes, and we're live tweeting from at IFGEvents. And as ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page. You're almost certainly already, already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb39, capital S, capital DB. If you're here at the IFG, you can, of course, raise your hand. Why does the IFG organize DataBytes? Well, we aim to bring together various different data communities in and around government to show everyone what better data can achieve in practice, and to put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does it work? You're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 39th Databyte, so you can watch the previous 38 on the IFG website. So what's happened since last month? Say it with me. Yes, it's been another quiet month in British politics. We'll come back to some of that in a moment, but it's also been a busy month here at the IFG. If you're interested in health data, you can check out our latest performance tracker, chock full of cheerful charts like this one, showing the dire state of our public services. One Times columnist summarised it as, all the graphs either slope dramatically up or down, depending on which is the bad one. <laughs> we also published our report on data sharing during the pandemic, which found some things that had gone well that government can learn from. Much more on the IFG website. But turning back to politics, let's go back a few weeks to the middle of February and start with that shock departure that dominated the headlines. <laughs> Not Lilt, though that was totally topical. Not Nathan Jones, sacked as manager of Southampton FC after just 94 days to become one of the shortest serving Premier League managers of all time. That's still nearly twice as long as Liz Truss's tenure as Prime Minister. The big departure was, of course, Nicola Sturgeon, after just over eight years as Scotland's First Minister and leader of the SNP. She's Scotland's longest serving First Minister, indeed, one of the longest serving of all of the leaders of the devolved nations, just behind the length that the position of First Minister of Northern Ireland has been vacant since power sharing started in 1998, and behind Rodri Morgan and Carwin Jones, Wales at the top of the table, something we're not used to at the moment. 
that Sturgeon's tenure has been an eventful one. Her eight years in post have included two Scottish Parliament elections, three UK general elections and one referendum, though not the one she wanted, two monarchs, five UK prime ministers, and to use the standard units of ministerial turnover, 10 secretaries of state DCMS, and 12 UK housing ministers. The big question now is who will succeed her and follow in the grand, highly scientific tradition of SNP first ministers sharing their names with fish. So let's cast our net over the SNP's pescatarian politicos. A couple that aren't standing in the leadership contest are Scotland's Cabinet Secretary for Rural Affairs and Islands, that's uh, Myrie Goujon, and Colin Beatty, the member of the Scottish Parliament for Musselburgh. Constitution Secretary Angus Robertson opted not to stand. He previously led the SNP in Westminster when he was the MP for Murray, though it's spelt like Moray, and that's good enough for me. <laughs> As for the actual leadership contenders, well, Humza Yusuf represents Glasgow Pollock. And who's been favourite so far? Well, it's Skate Forbes. Though some commentators have said that her campaign has started to flounder. But enough carping on with terrible fish puns. Let's turn to one of the other big stories of the month here in Whitehall, the MOG changes. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak changed the machinery of government, breaking up bays, transforming trade and detaching digital from DCMS to create some new departments. Now, the IFG is sceptical of the MOG changes. Is the disruption worth it? Will the costs be outweighed by any benefits? And the most important question of all, how should we abbreviate the new departments? Now, easiest for that is the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology, DSIT. SIT might be ironic for a move fast and break things department, one that played hokey-cokey this week with one of its flagship pieces of legislation, the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill. On Monday, Politico reported it had been kicked into the long grass. On Tuesday, they were told it would actually be back in Parliament next week. Or to put it in language the hip and happening cool kids at the Department for Cool might understand, then we have Business and Trade, or DBT, though many of us in the thick of it hope they will consider BAT instead. Then we come to the really difficult one, the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. I suggested essence to some colleagues, even if it does sound like a bad perfume. <laughs> you should have seen the ones I didn't use. Other IFG has suggested DESNES, or even DESNETS. Helpfully, the department itself has taken a view. Esens, Esnes, Desens, Desnes. However you want to pronounce our name, we'll be making sure we live up to it. I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> Let's just hope that creating the new department hasn't wasted a lot of energy for net zero benefit. Turning to tonight's event, which is a health special. First up, we'll be hearing from Valentina Sasso from Palantir Technologies on their work on cancer pathways. Second, joining us virtually will be Becky Taylor from University Hospitals of Northamptonshire on building the future of integrated care at Kettering and Northampton General Hospitals. Third, we'll hear from Elliot Bridges from the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority on trends in egg, sperm and embryo donation and their implications. And our fourth speaker will be Sarah Dini from the UK Health Security Agency on how the use of data and forecasting during the pandemic can help us protect the NHS and the public during the winter. 
Our next data bytes will be at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, the 5th of April. Here are the dates through to the summer, as well as a switching to Thursdays in June and July. You'll see we've snuck in an extra off-cycle event in May. I'll tell you more about that next month, so do come along. A huge thank you to Palantir for supporting tonight's event. They also supported our local government and levelling up special in December and defence special last month. We need sponsors to keep Databytes going, so if you'd like to follow Palantir's example and sponsor a future Databytes, please get in touch with my colleague Pratesh. We also need presenters to keep Databytes going, so if you're in government and would like to present or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. That is more than enough uh, from me, and while I resist the temptation to do any more fish puns, we will go to our first speaker this evening, and that's Valentina. All right, um, thank you for that awesome introduction. And I'm not really sure how I'm gonna follow that, so we'll give it a good go. So, as Gavin said, hi everyone, I'm Valentina. I am a software engineer and product manager at Palantir. And today what I'm gonna to talk to you about is our work on suspected cancer pathways at Chelsea and Westminster NHS Foundation Trust. But you'll forgive me for shortening that to Chelwest. So let's start with a little bit of wider context around our work with the NHS so far. So Palantir started working with the NHS in March of 2020, the onset of the pandemic. At first, the NHS used Foundry to provide a single source of truth on the infection spread. So if you've ever seen the gov.uk dashboard um, on the number of COVID cases, that was powered by Foundry. Uh, give me a second. Okay. So over the next year, the NHS went on to use Foundry um, to allocate ventilator stock to distribute 9 billion items of PPE and to, um, I guess, also distribute 120 million COVID vaccines. So these are some pretty awesome numbers. Oh, God, sorry. This is, there we go. Apologies. So after doing all of this work on the national level, we started to focus down on with individual trusts, working with trusts to help them manage their wait lists and also facilitate inpatient elective care. One of the trusts that we worked with right from the start was Chelsea and Westminster. And Chelwest now uses Boundary, among other things, to manage suspected cancer pathways. So at this point, you're probably asking, what is Foundry? So Foundry is a piece of software that brings together data from disparate sources, um, from teams and organizations, all into one place to let users model, insight, uh, model, model things, make good insights, and make awesome decisions. How has Chell West used Foundry? I think before we dive into that, it's probably worth giving you a little bit of background on what a suspected cancer pathway is. So a suspected cancer pathway is the journey that a patient takes from going when a GP refers them to a hospital right the way through to the moment they have their first cancer treatment. There's a number of targets um, that need to be hit on that pathway that the NHS sets out for each trust. And this is because of the absolute speed that patients need to be seen as. So those targets, to give you a quick example of how fast those are, Within 14 days of their referral, a patient needs to be seen for their first treatment. Within 20, uh, seen for their first appointment. Within 28 days, they need to have a diagnosis and they need to be informed of this. And by 60 days, they need to have their first treatment on the pathway. So this is an incredibly speedy timeline. When you compare that to non-cancer pathways, so routine referrals, 
where the target set out is 52 weeks at the maximum. It's a really different landscape that we're working in. And this speed is for a really good reason. Because each of the patients that Chelwest manages, there are 3,000 of them at any given point. Each of them will be going through a tremendously scary and tough part of their lives where they wait to find out if, they're if they have cancer or not. So whilst getting them this diagnosis quickly is really important from a clinical standpoint to improve their outcomes, it's also very emotionally important for each of these patients. So what is it that we, as a result of this, I think the aim of our cancer work had to be twofold. The first aim was to accelerate the speed of the diagnosis, so getting these patients an answer faster. The second was to increase the clinical safety across the pathway, so ensuring patients weren't missed or potentially receiving their diagnosis too late. We had an absolutely massive challenge to face. So to start, when we arrived, patient data relevant to the cancer pathway was stored across a multitude of systems. To give you a little bit of flavor for this, GP referral data is stored in one system. Patient appointment data and their history is another system. Imaging data, another system again. And pathology and, MR, pathology and other kind of diagnostic information is yet another system. And that's before we even consider the cancer register that all this needs to be brought into. So it's incredibly complicated. And staff at the NHS had to spend literal days each week bringing together and checking all of these systems for updates on the pathway and bringing that all together into an Excel spreadsheet known as a patient tracking list, or PTL. So by integrating these systems in Foundry, we've been able to connect all of these different sources, all of the kind of teams that need to be um, involved in managing cancer pathway, and really surface the data that's relevant to them. What you're seeing up on the screen is a notional example of our cancer pipeline. Um, this is visualized in Foundry's data lineage tool, and the boxes represent data sets, and the lines between them are transformations and integrations to pull them through onto the front-end applications. As you can see, it's immensely complicated. We've got our source systems down in pink, and our, you can see the flow to the right-hand side of our front-end applications. By bringing this data together, um, we were able to save those days of meetings um, and connect the teams that were previously not talking to each other in a useful and efficient way. And we've, allowed, we've surfaced information that's relevant to the pathway, up to date, all in one spot. So that the teams not only have the information that they need to do their jobs, but we're now able to also link traceable and auditable actions to that information. So they can both see what they need to do and have everything they need to do it. Again, all in the same system. So how did we do this? We started in August with an initial six-week pilot um, with gynecology. This was really, really key to our development process because what it allowed us to do was get feedback from the people actually using the tool and actually working in the cancer service so that what we were creating was genuinely effective and actually solved the problems that they were facing. After this trial period, we then proceeded to roll out um, cancer site by cancer site across the entire service. 
what this let us do, what this let us kind of do was build out any missing features kind of as we went, but also give bespoke training to each and every one of the teams so that they felt comfortable using the tool. By December, so by Christmas effectively that year, we had the entire cancer service of kind of 180 users, 42 teams um, across all 13 cancer sites, all using Foundry to manage their cancer pathways. And so as of kind of today, we've managed over 9,000 pathways um, using Foundry. So overall, what's been the impact of this work? I think the biggest impact that we've had so far has been increasing the effectiveness of each of the members of staff working on cancer pathways. By eliminating the need to copy and update information across systems, we've gotten rid of entire categories of administrative burden. We've also reduced the days spent copying information from system to system to a quarter of what they were. And we've increased the clinical safety of the pathways because we've completely gotten rid of the risk that patients are missed or information is missed, kind of copied between the various systems. And then although it's early days, we're seeing some really, really promising results by in increasing diagnostic speed. So we've had, um, just in our six-week trial alone, we've managed to bring down the lead time for booking the first appointment to half of what it was. And that, among other changes, really, really increasing the speed of the diagnosis pathway. And just a little bit to touch on what's next. So this work has been incredibly rewarding. And it's obviously a huge field in the, in the media right now. It's a big focus. And we work with Chelsea and Westminster to kind of take the tool that we have at the moment, iterate, take their feedback, integrate it all into the same place, improve what we've got. And then built going forwards, we start to tackle the kind of really big, meaty, exciting problems. So things like mutual aid and load balancing across different cancer services. Um, thank you very much for listening to what I had to say today. And yeah, thanks for coming to the Bites. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to come to the audience in the room first for questions. Um, I think we're having a few issues with the live stream, so apologies to anyone who is able to get through. Um, if you are watching us online, it's bit.ly slash slidodb39 for questions. Um, please wait for the microphone to come to you if you're in the room. Um, do tell us who you are and where you're from if you can. Remember, we are on the record. And please do keep your questions short as uh, we will be against the clock. And we've got the first question at the very back. Uh, Tim Hubbard from King's College, uh, Genomics England and Health Data Research UK. Um, so this particular system, um, I don't know what the state of those hospitals were, but when you've got King's is implementing Epic, UCLH is implementing won't some of this functionality be already built into those much more comprehensive EPRs? Will they still need this kind of layer on top? So... I think what's really interesting about the work that we've done, um, not only in the cancer space, but also across inpatients and outpatients as part of our CCS, or um, Coordinated Care Solution, is we're working with 30 trusts currently around the country. And they're all coming from a very kind of different kind of level of technical kind of integration. So what we found in Chelsea as a starting point is not necessarily going to be the same starting point that we see at other trusts. But what's really cool about Foundry is it's a piece of software that adapts 
so that and connects to different systems, regardless of what data landscape we find. And when we build out our ontology and our kind of standard health ontology um, within Foundry, um, what this allows us to do is create this standard layer that we're expecting each and every trust to be able to hit in terms of the data model. And then the cancer apps sit on top of that. And it makes it agnostic to what systems we find at each different trust and to the level of kind of integration that we find as well. Thanks. Who'd like to go next? Um, we'll come down here and we'll come to you at the back next. Hi, I'm Steve Black. I'm a long-standing health, independent health analyst. Um, I want to just kind of follow on from the first question, but um, and I don't mean to disvolunteer by saying this, but when you look at the problems you are solving, do you get the impression that a good deal of these problems should never have existed in the first place had anybody organized hospital systems properly? I think that's a really good question because what you often see on the ground is huge numbers of staff working incredibly hard to deliver really good patient care. And what that often means is that they don't have time. They spend their lives firefighting. They don't have time to really think outside the box or conduct this disruptive innovation of the kind that's needed to really shake things up and make a difference. So coming in from, as a palantirian, not as, not as someone who works in healthcare kind of day to day, um, what was really interesting was that my engineering background led me to kind of spot things that to me seemed very obvious, but are not always kind of, when you're deep in the thick of it, going to be the first thing you think of. And I think that partnership is really what's made the work so successful, because we're coming at it from these different angles. The healthcare experts bringing that healthcare knowledge, knowing what the patients need and when they need to get it by. And Palantir bringing that kind of engineering and that kind of fresh set of eyes. Um, and I think that's really been the key to it. Thanks. Um, those of you watching online should be back with us. If you'd like to ask a question, it's bit.ly slash slidodb39, and you'll be able to watch back anything that you missed um, on the IFG website within about 24 hours. I think our next question is at the back there. Hey, uh, thank you, Sam, from the Confidential. Medicine advances by writing things down so that others can learn from what you've done. And we saw from, for example, DeepMind and the Royal Free that they wrote you know, open access journal articles about what they learned and that led to better treatments for all from their technologies. Um, but writing it up requires peer review, independent scrutiny where the hospital chair isn't a paid consultant to the company. So where is this written up? At the moment, we have a number of kind of different organizations. Obviously, this is in the public record as a starter. Um, let's keep in mind that this work is early days. We piloted in August. We've rolled out to successfully to all of the kind of different cancer sites only in Christmas, so a couple months ago. And now we're really at the stage of cementing the processes as business as usual and starting to see the improvements come from this. I think that's an absolutely great call out and is something that we should definitely be doing going forwards. But if you think of it in terms of the life cycle of the work so far, we're at stage one, we're like proof of concept. This is the next step is gonna be, how do we document this? How do we get it out there? Databytes is just one step in that. Thanks. Uh, who would like to go next? I've got a question down here. 
Hi, thank you. Uh, my name's Nadine, I'm from the Health Foundation. Um, so a slightly different question, but um, obviously a lot, there's a lot of discourse right now around workforce and whether we have the capacity. And um, this obviously, from what we've seen, frees up a lot of time. Um, do you have any feedback, if only anecdotal, on sort of staff perceptions of this innovation and, and how they've been receptive to it? I think the response has been unanimously very positive. Um, you can see from the Times article that re got released over kind of New Year that it has kind of well, been really well received. People really like the fact that they're seeing everything in one place. If you think of, let's say, an MDT coordinator's normal day before Foundry came in, they would have had five different systems open and been clicking between each of them to try and find out for each patient what the latest thing was, what test had just come back, what blood test result. What we've now brought together into one place and one system is revolutionary for that role. And there's a number of other examples that I could use as well. Uh, we've got an online question. This is from Mark. Good evening to you, Mark. Um, Palantir has flexible functions for metadata export. Are they under sole control of Palantir, the company, or is the choice of whether to export anything the choice of your customers? So that's a fantastic question. I think it's worth iterating that, oh, just, sorry, not reiterating, but actually stating that the NHS is always the data controller. So they control who sees their data, how and where it's exported, um, what systems it goes into, and Palantir in this case is a data processor. So we're a piece of software that the NHS chooses to use in order to kind of interact with their patient data in the same way that they might choose to use Microsoft Excel. So we have these really cool kind of flexible connectors, as the question stated, and what they allow us to do is connect to a range of different systems and a range of different technologies. Um, one use of them would be to export data if the NHS so chose as the controller. Great, thank you. Um, I'll come back in the room for the next question. Who wants to go next? Um, I've got one there. Hi, thanks for your talk. My name is Chooks. I'm a private data consultant. You mentioned about downloading spreadsheets from different GPs and appointments. How are you guys able to automate that process? Because it could easily be a bottleneck in your massive Palantine system. Yeah. So I think I should clarify in this case that the spreadsheets in question were pulled together from the information available in the cancer register in the various different source systems for the diagnostic information. And they were pulled together by members of staff within the hospital to make sense of the data landscape that they found themselves in, to bring that together that information to make it more usable. So whilst we can use spreadsheets as one of the many types of inputs within Foundry as a software, really in this case in cancer, what we were trying to do was actually replace the spreadsheet and replace the need for it as a way to kind of reduce that admin burden of, if you can imagine, managing 3,000 patients on a spreadsheet means going into those five systems for each and every one of those spreadsheets to pull the latest status. Uh, so not spreadsheets, patients, to pull the latest status, to pull the latest diagnostic. That's what we were trying to get at, and that's what we've managed to do with the system. Thanks. I'm going to squeeze in a final quick question from the very back. Follow-up from what was said before about um, data controllers and data processors. <clears throat> There's, of course, sensitivity about so where is this data actually hosted? Is it in a cloud platform? And more importantly, is it then encrypted at rest? And then who manages the encryption keys? How is that implemented? So 
you'll have to forgive me because I'm definitely not the expert in the specifics of how we kind of handle the data from a security standpoint. Palantir's got a very long-standing background in dealing with very sensitive and secure data, and there's kind of entire teams within the company that are dedicated to making sure that data remains safe and secure. Um, so that's kind of, I can ha I'm happily put you in touch with the relevant team if you'd like. Brilliant. Well, Valentina, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Uh, a reminder for anyone watching us online, if you would like to put questions to our speakers, it's bit.ly slash slidodb39, capital S, capital DB. Uh, and we're going online for our next speaker, and that's Becky. Who will hopefully... Hi, everyone. Hopefully, am I here? We can indeed. Hello, hello. Hi, I'm Becky. I'm Director of Transformation and Quality Improvement at Kettering and Northampton Hospitals. Super. Shall I, shall I get going? Go for it. Super. Um, so thank you. Um, as uh, I said earlier, it helps to want to talk today about um, integrating care across our hospitals. So we are two um, hospitals in Northamptonshire. Um, you will be aware from the news and it was in your charts at the beginning. Our biggest issue is our elective waiting list. Um, and we are working across our two hospitals as what we call in the NHS an elective care collaborative to help address um, what that looks like. Um, and how can we minimise waiting times? How can we make sure if we've got a longer waiting time in one, one of our two hospitals, how can we make sure we share that across the system? Um, however, we have two sets of systems that don't talk to each other um, because we um, two separate hospitals, two separate clinical systems, two separate operating theatre systems, um, really difficult to get some of that information. So we can't see what our waiting list and capacity to treat patients is across Northamptonshire. Um, so we joined the Trust CCS programme, the Trust Care Coordination um, System programme to help us with that visibility of what is our waiting list across our whole system and what capacity have we got. Um, and my experience of working with data in the NHS, you either have nowhere near enough data um, or far too much data. Um, and I think um, we've got instances of both of these in how do we manage our, our weight or where we were in terms of managing our waiting list. So um, if I think about our information around how effectively our operating theatres are running, um, our teams don't have or didn't have access to that data, can't see, you know, um, it's Mr. Smith on a Friday who always starts his surgeon, surgery sessions late. Um, it's um, Mrs. Jones who always books her Friday afternoon session um, to be slightly less than the others. And you have people who are managing that capacity based on gut feel. And then on the other side, too much data, um, really difficult to see where are the key things I need to pay attention to. If you've got lists of hundreds of, well, tens of thousands of patients, how do we really see where those issues are and how can you quickly get to um, what, what the different um, problems are and what you can take that can, what action you can take that can make a difference. So um, just an example of booking patients into theatre. So we've got a patient waiting list. In theory, we need to book these patients into the waiting list, which on the face of it seems quite simple. Um, but in reality, um, what we need for that is some information on our waiting list. We need information on the preoperative status of the patient. Have they had a session with the anaesthetist? Are there any special things that need to come up about that? We need the theatre scheduling data. We need the theatre staffing data. And they come from 
um, four different systems um, who don't talk to each other. Um, we have an ad added complexity in Northampton showing that we've got two different hospitals. So this is actually eight different systems, uh, which doesn't make it particularly easy. And then inputting the information into those systems, we've got the theatre team, we've got the specialty management team, we've got the surgeon themselves, we've got the theatre booking team, and then we've got the clinical and operational leadership. So very quickly, something that should be relatively straightforward gets to be quite complicated. Um, so pulling together with the trust CCS, we've pulled together, I say we, um, through Foundry, been able to pull together all these bits of data from the different directions they've come from, um, which is a really big step forward for us. It is really, really hard to be able to see all of our data in one place with the systems that we've got set up in, in the hospitals. Um, we've then organised it. Um, and organising it helps to bridge the gap between the different systems. Um, and that can be, um, uh, you know, as simple as linking data fields up. But for example, in Kettering, we include our endoscopy rooms in our theatre scheduling system. And in Northampton, we don't. We use a different system for endoscopy. So it helps to kind of make sure that we're looking at that properly. Um, so we were quite pleased with this. Um, but what we found is that the data by itself isn't necessarily that meaningful. Um, so what I wanted to show you was how we started this work in June. Um, so this graph, which is mostly covered up at the moment, um, shows you the usage of our system. Um, so we launched in June and you can see these are actions that people created in the tool to add another patient to a waiting list or to change their, their um, theatre schedule. You can see we went, oh, great, you know, we've got 100 actions in the tool. Isn't, isn't that good? People are using it. They're finding it really helpful. Um, and then what happened was it was very flat um, and we really struggled to help people to understand after the initial you've been on the training to really embed it in the way that they're working and doing something um, different around the way that we're booking patients. Um, so we kind of took a step back. Um, so we've got our data, we've brought all of that together, we've organised it. Um, but what we then went back to is trying to make it work for different levels. And we initially started with, well, what do I need as director of transformation? What do our chief operating officers need? What do our medical directors need? And actually, that didn't really work for what the frontline teams needed, who we needed to input the data, high quality data, manage their workload. Um, so work with the team to understand the workflow outside of the system. How are people doing that? What will be helpful for them and build that around them? really clear on the governance so really helpful having this data which meetings is it going to be used in how are we going to use it how are we making sure that people are accessing the information um, what decisions are we making with that and how can we evidence that we've made the decision in the right way um, design that then with the people who are using the tool and particularly in here because we're entering data and information you know we're saying we want to do an action and book this patient or we want to remove them from the waiting list because they no longer need care it's really important that we're understanding how people are using that information and um, and then a bit of a lesson I mean I'm, I'm a bit of a data geek um, and I think it for people who love data bringing it all together is um you get quite excited. Oh, we could do this and we could do that. And it'll totally transform the way that we operate. Um, but I think we probably tried to 
eat the elephant all in one go and taking some small bites, making sure it works for people, embedding it, testing it means that we've then got a platform that we can go on and do more things with it. Um, and really just making it as easy as possible for people to, to do this. So um, we are working with integrating it into some of our additional clinical systems that will help with some workflows. Um, we have some robotic process automation in Northampton. So we're looking at how can we write back into our clinical systems, which, again, just takes away some of that, I guess, activation energy for people use, using the system. Um, so. We, we spent a bit of time kind of consolidating, you know, what does that look like? And then you can really see that was when we really started to kind of take off in terms of usage, um, usage of the system, which is all very well. People are using the system. Um, but what does that really mean in reality? So this chart here is our theatre utilisation um, for our hospitals. So the blue line is how what percentage, um, so at the top it's 95%, um, uh, and the kind of bottom of where the line is is about 45%. So what percentage of our theatre time are we spending operating on patients? And the blue line are all of the specialties who aren't using our tools, haven't put in place and embedded the processes because we're working through an, um, a, a kind of pilot approach. And then the pink line at the end are the specialties who are using it. And you can really see the difference between having that data, getting the workflow right, putting all of the governance there, you know, the difference in utilisation between those two lines, that's the equivalent for us of around two and a half thousand patients a year um, who are getting more treatment, um, who are getting their waiting times shorter. Um, and in Northamptonshire, we have some of the, the shortest waiting times in the country. Um, so I will stop there. Um, but hopefully that's a bit of an overview, I guess, of the journey we've been on, on bringing data together and then what, what that means in terms of getting people who perhaps are not used to using data um, to integrate it into the way that they work. Thank you very much, Becky. And uh, thank you for giving us a new meaning of data bytes. Though I should stress, no elephants were harmed in the making of tonight's event. Um, we're going to go uh, into the room for questions again. First, again, if you are online, please do use the Slido. It's bit.ly slash slidodb39 if you're not there already. Who in the room would like to ask Becky a question? It's Steve Black. I don't want to hog all the questions, but... Um, I want to ask a, a version of the same question I, I posed to Palantir. It looks to me, I mean, if you, if you were working in a different industry, you would be doing the stuff with data probably a little bit better. I mean, Amazon has to deliver parcels, and they usually deliver them on time, and they're organized, and they don't have a mess behind the scenes. So the, the real question is, why is the NHS the way it is? What is the root cause of the fact that the data is not connected and people don't appear to know what to do with it? On, on, well, until you get Palantir in, apparently. Uh, that is a very good question. Um, so I think the IT infrastructure of the NHS um, it is piecemeal. Um, that's partly due to the way that the NHS and the capital funding programmes work. Um, it probably partly due to the National Programme for IT um, that people may or may not be aware, um, spent quite a lot of money and didn't 
achieve the outcomes that it was intended to. Um, and so that, I think, prevented quite a lot of the let's have a national system that means that all the systems are integrated and talk to each other because when that was tried, it, it didn't work very well. I think um, until recently, uh, and I'm probably talking the last five or so years, I don't think during some of the procurements of the IT systems, interoperability and data pipelining and being able to get data out was particularly well built in into the specifications of some of these programs. Um, so some systems are quite antiquated and the contracts haven't yet kind of come up come up for renewal. But there is a program in the NHS at the moment to put um, you know, all systems onto an EPR. So we have one in Kettering, actually. We don't have one in Northampton. And our systems in Kettering are substantially more joined up than the ones that we've got in Northampton. So I think we are on a journey in that direction. Um, but we've still got the issue of the people systems don't talk to the the, the, the healthcare systems and, and how does that fit together. I also think that um, there hasn't been a great deal of historic um, investment in data analytics, data engineering, data science skills in, in the NHS. Um, I have worked in the private sector before and, you know, when you are trying to compete within the NHS pay structures for people uh, you know, who are high quality data analysts, data engineers, it is extremely difficult to compete against some of the salaries that people can get working for Amazon, working for other private organisations who can pay more. Um, and I think there's been a lot of work um, since COVID, you know, I think that the value of data was really proven during COVID, all of the work around the vaccines, um, all of the work around the research into COVID treatments. That has meant there is now you know, OK, well, how do we grow our own within the NHS? But we are on the back foot with that, I think. Thanks. Um, I'm going to go online for the next question. This one is from Mark again. Um, how much has data cleansing, in quotation marks, in Palantir, reduced your waiting lists? And how many of those cleansed patients were later added to the back of that same list? So we are very, we're in a different position than a lot of NHS organisations um, in that our waiting list was already quite clean. Um, so we have cleansed a very small number compared to some, some other organisations who I know are in the pilot. So we've probably only cleansed around about 50 patients from our waiting lists. Now, partly we've got, as I say, a smaller waiting list um, than some of the rest of the country. Um, but we had also spent a lot of time and uh, money um, in doing a lot of that cleansing manually ourselves. Um, so what we are expecting and hoping that Palantir will allow us to do going forward is to do that in a more time efficient way so that we can use that admin resource, um, that clinician time to do other things. Um, but yeah, we are in a slightly different position than I know some of the other um, some of the other um, trusts who were on the pilot are in on that great so as far as i'm aware nobody's been added back on again um, but it would be a very small number if that was the case thanks um, i'll come back in the room for the next question we've got one down here good evening becky my name is guneet uh, i am an analytics consultant at a boutique consulting firm called the math company uh, my question is regarding how did you go about procuring a solution if you would want to call it from palantir uh, how, like, what is the process? Do you like put up a problem statement? Is it a statement of work? Is it a contract? Is it a long-term deal? 
because as a boutique consulting firm, we usually only work with like Fortune 100 companies, but we would not even think about how do we go start working with NHS trusts. So could you like just declutter or uh, disentangle this uh, mirage for us? Thank you. Um, so the uh, the pilot that we're on with, with Palantir is a national pilot, so the contracts are all held with, with NHS England, um, and then we are part of that pilot as part of the um, improving elective care um, program across um, across the NHS. But I think your question is probably if we were to do something locally, how would we go about that? Um, so the way that a lot of the NHS procurement works, there's a set of frameworks that are out there. Um, some of the big ones are there's a Crown Commercial Services Framework. Um, there's the um, NHS Digital Marketplace G Cloud. And what we would normally do would be to, as you say, create a statement of um, statement of work, and put that out in terms of um, a, an ITT to some suppliers who were on that framework, um, and then go through a procurement process in terms of evaluating those bids for. Um, you know, hitting the essential criteria and hitting value for money around what that looks like. Um, probably the main one from a digital perspective would be the NHS um, digital marketplace run by um, gov.uk. Great, thank you. Um, I'm going to go online for the next question. Um, Anonymous, good evening to you, Anonymous, um, asks, uh, the use of foundry in the NHS is not without controversy. Do you have ethical concerns about doing so? So it, it isn't without controversy um, and we had some of those conversations, so I sit on the both boards, we have had some of those conversations um, in boards. Um, we have really strong information governance um, in Kettering and Northampton, our teams have won national awards. Um, we have it for information governance, um, which uh, can be a blessing and a curse when you're trying to um, get to get data shared. Um, but in our case, we're really fortunate because it protects us as an organisation. And I, I put my trust in in their uh, professional understanding and ability around um, information governance and that our data is secure. And, you know, I, I think the direct benefit that we are seeing at being able to better manage our patient waiting list and our um, operating theatres. You know, I can point out the patients who have been treated quicker because of that. Um, and, you know, that there are a set of, you know, very stringent data sharing, data processing agreements. You know, would I feel more comfortable if it was something that was entirely owned by the NHS? Um, yeah, of course I would. Um, we're not in that situation in terms of um, in terms of that, and so we have to be reliant on on some of the the large data companies who are at the end of the day expert at what they do in this space. Um, but I'm confident that the balance of risk sits on the side, you know, certainly from the contracts that I've seen and, and read and looked at the data sharing agreements. The balance of risk, um, the benefits outweigh that for me. Thanks. Very quick question, very quick answer, right at the back. You mentioned data cleansing. Um, if you're fixing errors in the data that's being imported into the Palantir system, is that going back into the patient record, which is held in the hospital? Because, of course, that is the, the base of truth. Yes, yeah, 100%. Um, so... The way that it functions in our tool at the moment um, is people identify an error, it like that there's an error there and it essentially creates an action which kicks off a workflow um, and then somebody goes into the system and corrects it. Um, what 
talented foundry will, will then do is say, has that then been actioned in the system? So you can, um, it doesn't directly write back, which is helpful because obviously we've got user-based access control on some of our clinical systems. Um, but what it does do is say, has that action been completed? Yes or no. Um, we are looking in a couple of cases about whether or not we can do some automatic write back, but we're just making sure that we are putting in place all of those user-based access controls. So we don't have people making amendments to the records um, unnecessarily. Brilliant. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. But Becky, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, we're back in the room for our next speaker, and that's Elliot. Uh, your slides will appear very shortly, and there's a clicker should you need it. Ah, okay. Uh, okay. okay. Shall I begin? Go for it. Okay, so I'm Elliot Bridges. I'm from the uh, Human Fertilization Embryology Authority, and I'm going to talk through a recent report on trends in egg, sperm, and embryo donation and some of the implications arising from that. So, we begin with a quick overview of the UK fertility sector. So, in the UK, around one in every seven couples will have difficulty conceiving, uh, conceiving and um, as a result of this, various technologies and approaches have been developed, and this led in 1990 to the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act, which established a body, the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, the HFEA, which I'll hopefully not have to say again now, um, which regulates fertility treatment in the UK and embryo research. And with regard to fertility treatment, we collect data on the treatments which take place across the UK, which is around... Uh, there's around 50,000 IVF patients each year. So IVF is a procedure where um, eggs and sperm are mixed, uh, turned into an embryo, and then the embryos are transferred into a patient. And we also collect data on around 3,000 donor insemination uh, patients per year. So that's a procedure in which sperm from a sperm donor is uh, transferred into a patient's uterus. Both of these are done with the intention of creating a pregnancy. They've become more and more common um, as the years have gone on. And in 2019, around one in every 32 uh, children born were conceived using one of these methods. So we then move on to egg, sperm, and embryo donation specifically. Um, so in uh, every year, in, there's around 1,400 new egg donors, around 800 new sperm donors. Um, these donated eggs, sperm and embryos are used in around 15,000 treatments. They lead to around 4,000 births. And to put that into context, around one in every 170 births in the UK were donor-conceived in 2019. And that works out about one in every six IVF uh, babies. Okay, we then move on to why we're talking about this now. So 2023 is quite a big year in fertility. So this goes back to a law change in 2005. So prior to 2005, anybody who donated sperm, eggs, or embryos was fully anonymous. And then uh, there was a law change, which made it so that um, all people who donated after that date had to agree that 18 years after, uh, sorry, once the, uh, any children conceived using their donation turned 18, they'd be able to learn the donor's name and address from the HFEA. They'd be able to apply to us for that information. So um, 18 years after 2005 is 2023. So this is, this is the year for this. Um, also, as a result of that law change, uh, donors from before 2005 were given the ability to uh, drop their own anonymity if they so choose, 
we've encouraged donors to uh, do this if they're or to consider doing this if they uh, did donate in that period because it's quite beneficial for the children to have access to that information and around 260 donors have done so um, so this is one of the services we provide we like um, link people up with uh, we, we provide information to donor conceived children. Um, we have other similar services. We have one where um, donor conceived people can apply to us and say, I'd like to meet my half siblings who were conceived using the same donor. And if their half siblings also apply to us, then we put them in contact with each other and you get these sort of wholesome stories every now and then, like this one. Um, okay, so we then move on to some data. Um, so back when this law change happened in 2005, there were concerns that it would result in a decline in the number of people <laughs> registering to become donors. So this graph is the number of people registering to become donors each year. Uh, in teal, we have the number of egg donors. You see there was um, a bit of a decline around 2005, but this was sort of part of a trend going on around that period um, more broadly, and the numbers have since increased, and they're higher than they were before the, before the law change. Um, th there was a bit of a, drip, a drop in COVID, but this is to be expected uh, because clinics had to close for a period, and they had to prioritise their treatments once they reopened. Uh, for sperm donation, it's a bit of a different story. The sperm donor numbers are relatively steady um, throughout uh, since 1991. There's been a bit of an increase in recent years, but this line is a little bit misleading because um, a lot of the, if you break this sperm donor number down by whether or not the, it's a UK-based donor or a donor we've imported, um, the, the UK-based numbers are relatively steady, whereas the uh, import numbers have increased in recent years. Okay. Uh, we then move on to the effects of this for us now. So this is um, an approximation of the number of people turning 18 each year eligible to learn the information, um, the name and last known address of their donors. And um, as you can see, it's sort of relatively steady until this year. There's a bit of an increase this year. It's only a bit of an increase because these uh, rules changes happened partway through 2005, and then you have to allow nine months for a pregnancy. And, and the, uh, the kids weren't actually born until fairly late in the year, and then a big increase from then on. Uh, so this is a big, big change for the sector. There's going to be a lot more people eligible for this information um, going forward. And uh, yeah, this is a big change for us as well, because it's quite a lot of work for us to process these applications, and we have to work with clinics as well, and they um, have to spend quite a bit of time on this as well. As you'd imagine, we don't want to mess up this sort of information. It's, it's quite crucial information to somebody's life, who your genetic parents are, so we put a lot of work into it. Uh, so to prepare for this, we've, um, the, the size of the team which, is, uh, which processes these applications has increased. They're still fairly small, but they have increased. We've spent quite a bit on the uh, tech side of things to try and make them more efficient in their work. And there's a communications project around this as well to make people aware of what information is available to them and to make sure they understand the, the, the nature of what they're likely to learn. Okay, uh, we then move on to some information from a survey which we conducted on, uh, in late 2021 of fertility patients generally. Within that, we asked some questions about donation and some people commented on donor anonymity uh, specifically. So some people were fairly happy with the current situation. So we have at the top a quote from a patient who was quite um, happy with the current situation and the, the fact that their child would one day be able to learn information about their donor made them feel 
a lot happier about using an egg donor in their treatment. Uh, but also we had some comments from patients saying they felt that their um, child should be able to gain the information at an earlier stage than they currently can. And uh, we have a quote from a patient here on this as well. I should say as well, this is like a, a um, area with uh, recent developments in the sort of field. Um, there's the websites like 23andMe and these sort of things where you can like upload your DNA to somebody and they process it. These websites also, um, like as part of their service, can link you up with relations. If you're doing a conceived, that can lead to you getting information from outside of our uh, services. And so this means there's been developments in this area generally. Okay, so we then finish with uh, the HFEA Act, which has established the HFEA, is uh, currently out for consultation on review. Uh, consultation on review. Um, it went, the consultation went live yesterday, coincidentally. So uh, we're consulting on changes we'd like to see made to the Act uh, in a variety of areas, patient safety, consent, scientific developments, and particular to this, access to information on uh, donors. And so, yeah, we are doing some work on this now. And that is the end of my talk. 10 seconds there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Somebody online has asked, does the speaker have any advice to Gavin on not having obviously terrible jokes in presentations? Which <laughs> you don't have to answer. Um, <laughs> shall we come to the room first? Who would like to ask the first question of Elliot? Um, I'll go with the gentleman just in front of you, Alex, and then I'll come to you next. Coming, um, UK Health Security Agency. Thank you very much for the talks, very nice. Um, I was very surprised to see the uh, egg and sperm lines after 2005 not really change as much as I could have expected them to. Do you know what the estimates of the changes in those lines were when the policy was being debated back then? And does that have implications for the balance of how much information we might want to disclose in the future, given the impact on um, incentives and actions? Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the modelling was back then. It's obviously quite a while ago, and um, we're, a, we're a very small organisation, so I don't know if, um, what, what was done by then. Um, yeah, I, I would want to comment. <laughs> cool, thank you. Um, we've got a question right at the back. So you're, you get approached by somebody who wants to know their donation, um, their, their parents by that route. Um, what checks do you have in place? Because this is rather like Genomics England. People can request their genome. Mm. We have to worry about, is it really the person? Is it really their genome? Because otherwise we'd be disclosing data that we shouldn't disclose. What checks do you have? Because you can have people approach you pretending to be, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah, so I obviously don't do this specifically. I believe they have, like, <coughs> they're required to see, like, photo ID and all of this sort of checks and they work with the clinics as well and um, yeah, ask for some information on the original treatments as well and they ask for quite a bit of information which you would like, it'd be hard to learn without being the specific person. Thanks. And um, we've got a question down here at the front. Um, so I was wondering whether the parents, so not the biological parents, but the parents that opted to use donation as a method for conception had access to the donor information beforehand 
and therefore what proportion of the children were ultimately told by the, the people who raised them um, about their kind of donor parents ahead of the 18-year mark, and therefore what implications that proportion has on the ultimate load that you'll have of patients coming through and asking for, asking for their donor information at the 18-year mark. Okay, so um, in the UK, when you, when you go into a fertility, fertility clinic and ask for a, a sperm or egg donor, you get some, like, some top-level information on the donor. You get like, heights and um, like hair color and eye color and these sort of things. You don't get specific, like, this, like, you, you don't get introduced to the person. I believe there are some um, organizations which work, like, do um, services where they do recruit donors specifically with people, but I'm not 100% certain of the details of this, so I wouldn't really want to talk about it. And for maybe the second part of your question? What, then, in proportion, I like, guess, subsequently, but if they don't have that full personal information, I guess the second half is a bit moot. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, um, yeah. Uh, we do encourage people to tell their children at an early age to, uh, that they are donor-conceived. There's, re oh, I don't know if we encourage it, but there is research to suggest it is a good thing to do for the child. Thanks. And um, we've got a question online from Greater, which is how much of pre-2005 donations are still in stock, or were they discarded once the policy was accepted? Uh, okay, so this is a recent change, but... Um, at the time, you could only store um, sperm or eggs for 10 years, except in like specific medical situations. So if you were a cancer patient, you could store your sperm or eggs for longer than, uh, you could store them for 55 years. The rules on this did change last year to 55 years for everybody. But um, yeah, they, they shouldn't be still in stock from donors back then. Thanks. Uh, let's come back in the room for the next question. We've got one over there in the corner. Hi, I'm Gareth Humphreys from NHS Blood and Transplant. Um, with more, as more people find out their history, uh, do you have any plans to use to co collect some case studies to help promote sperm and egg donation across the UK? Um, I don't know if we have specific plans around like that sort of case study. We do have a patient engagement forum where we meet with patients regularly and ask for their advice on things and get them involved in the, the process. So I imagine it'd probably come under that. Um, so yeah, we, we probably would speak to them, but um, yeah, in terms of a formal, like setting up a thing, I don't know. Thanks. Um, we've got a question in the opposite corner uh, as well. Uh, Matt Cologa, freelance, freelance data scientist. Um, that uh, graph you had of the, the, obviously the impact of COVID on donation rates and things. To what extent did that sort of, are you forecasting the opportunity that that, or the, the reduction in opportunity that might create for donors in the future? Or is it not going to, or do you not think it's going to have an actual impact on the number of people who can uh, use donations? Um, so we do an annual release of like various aspects of fertility data. And the next one of those is coming in the summer. Um, or something like that is coming in the summer, and this will be included in that. So, um, yeah. Excellent. Um, let's stay in the room for the next question. I've got one there. My name's... Oh, that wasn't working. So, uh, Fiona, I'm from the Department of Health and Social Care in the Supply Resilience Directorate. Um, so, um, 
I remember last year when Ukraine Russia started and we were looking at your data around where um, egg donation comes from and surprised that Ukraine actually um, a lot of donor eggs to the UK comes from Ukraine so we learned that last year but within your annual data re release um, would you look at the ecosystem of products and services around donor um, egg and sperm in the UK if there's any kind of medical products or um, devices that you know the supply chain might be susceptible to shocks from kind of global um, events from anywhere um, do you know where the products are made for kind of you know the the donation services and things like that um, yeah I don't really know too much about this sort of the specific products I'd imagine that I'd be like MHRA or somebody like this would deal with this. Um, right. Yeah, and in terms of Ukrainian like egg donors, yeah, that very like a very small proportion of egg donation is from abroad. The vast majority of it is within the UK. Yeah. Great. I think we've got time for one final question. We've got a hand just in front in, in front, Alex. Yeah. There. Hi, Chooks again. I noticed in your chat that the don't, the women, ladies donors are much higher than the guys. What does that tell us? That Does it show that women are more generous than men? Or how do you explain that? As in, why there's more um, female than Ah, it's, it's um, a lot simpler than you expect. It's just each man can provide more donations easier. It's, it doesn't involve surgery for a man. It does for a woman. Um, yeah. Thanks. I might squeeze in one very quick last question. We've heard mention of some of the sort of online genetic service genomics, England as well. What can other parts of the health system learn from how you're handling what is actually really sensitive information about individuals? Um. In 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very broad question. Um, I'm not totally sure how to answer that one, I'm afraid. Um, just sort of, yeah, generally planning ahead, doing a lot of the, like, thinking through all of the possibilities early on. It's, it's worth doing, planning. Yeah, like this work isn't gonna like properly start to build up until later in this year, early next year, but we've been planning for it for a couple of years, like quite intensely and sort of on a lower level for a longer time and yeah, continue to plan going forward. Excellent, I love how much you've respected the time. <laughs> uh, Elliot, thank you very much indeed. And we turn now to our final speaker this evening, and that is Sarah. Great. Uh, you can go. Whenever you ready. Thank you very much. Um, hi, everybody, and it's uh, lovely to be here and quite intimidating now to those wonderful speakers that we've had, um, so thank you for sticking with us. Um, I work in the UK Health Security Agency and we were formed um, out of a super mog of a number of different organisations. And the most important thing you need to know about the UK Health Security Agency, of course, is that we all pronounce it OXA. I don't make the rules, that's just how we pronounce it. And our job is to keep the nation's health safe from another number of different health hazards. So that includes infectious diseases, chemical, biological and radiation, um, extreme events um, and things like climate change. And so what we needed to do then um, this winter was to really prepare for what we knew would be a very uncertain and unprecedented situation. So you'll all have been familiar, I 
think, and we've already heard it mentioned a number of times, of all the work that this, the previous organisations had done during COVID. And we had learned a lot about how you use data to um, inform the public, to take decisions and to um, learn what to do in the face of these kind of health hazards. But this winter, we knew that what we would have would be still COVID around and that would put pressure on the health system. We would also have a return of multiple different respiratory viruses because we returned to normal social mixing. But we didn't know what that was going to look like because we hadn't had a modern situation where we had gone from having no social mixing for two years, pretty much no flu or RSV, and then suddenly back to normal. So we're moving into a really uncertain situation. So then in, sorry, I have to figure out if I can use this clicker. Oh no, I cannot apparently, there we go. Um, so what we did during the summertime, and so I was sitting in 40 degree heat in London, thinking about winter and looking at the Southern hemisphere. Um, and so what we needed to do was to help our colleagues in the NHS plan for what was going to happen this winter. And one of the things that we happen to have, of course, by having a Southern hemisphere, so we've got another winter to look at. So we, instead of just crystal ball gazing, we can actually look to see what happened in Australia and New Zealand. And this is data all from Australia, from our colleagues down there, and what happened with their winter time. And so what we're able to say, was that we did have flu come back with normal social mixing. It was a bit early, and so it's the red line is 2022. It wasn't so much higher than usual in terms of hospital admissions, um, but that we had it circulating at the same time as COVID. So certainly possible to have uh, the twin demic as, as it, we went into winter thinking of it as. But this is still really uncertain because we didn't know, obviously, put it obviously, Australia is a different country, has a very different uh, mixing, particularly because they don't have Christmas in their winter. And that's a big difference to us. And so what we knew that we needed to do was to go and, first of all, monitor the situation really comprehensively. And Ox's uh, previous organisations have always done this over the years. And so what's up here is information from our flu sentinel surveillance system. You're all familiar with our COVID sentinel surveillance system, so I, I won't throw those up today. But what our flu systems do is they take a number of different hospitals and have um, submissions of data on flu samples from those hospitals. And we can tell what type of flu is actually circulating um, in the community and in hospitals. And then how does it compare to previous years? So we've got records going back about 10 years. And what you can see here is that during the winter time, flu did arrive a bit early in the UK. Um, it went up really fast. Uh, so this, the dark black line, it was a lot more in terms of hospital admissions than we've had in previous years. And so what we were looking into then was a situation where we needed each week to be able to inform our colleagues in the NHS what we thought was going to happen in the next two weeks. So surveillance is incredibly good, obviously at telling us what we think happened a few days ago. What decision makers need is to be able to say, what do we need to do in the next few weeks? And that is where we need to bring in things like modeling and forecasting. And of course, we do have a big track record from this from COVID and from um, previously when we were doing a lot of modelling around flu before the pandemic. But those flu models were actually really complex and had a lot of data inputs, which we couldn't really use this winter because while we knew or we thought we'd gone back to normal social mixing, we didn't know what the immunological makeup of the population really was. We didn't really know quite how people had returned to normal in terms of social mixing. And so we needed a really simple model that we could use to give just enough information to do planning over the winter time. And so that is what we built. 
So on, I'm just, we also have a very similar COVID model, but I'm just going to bring you through the flu one. So on the left-hand side, uh, that is not that model. That's not the good model. That's what we use as our comparator. Um, this is the model that we had over here, and it's really very simple. So at a trust level, we use the NHS's own data, their SITREPs, which say how many people are in hospital with flu at any given day. And we said, right, well, past behavior in those hospitals is actually pretty predictive of future behavior over the next two weeks when we run the model. We can also say that trusts in a similar area are likely to be quite similar in the behavior because infectious diseases tend to be geographically similar. And we then put that into a model and projected ahead two weeks. And in some ways, I think we maybe got a little bit lucky. So the shape of the curve, as you saw, was a triangle. That's always a lot easier to predict than something that's a bit more flat. Um, but we actually predicted, just using that really simple model, the peak and the turn of the peak over the Christmas period, which was really tough, uh, and then bringing back down. And you can see here that we had a early season, and it was quite fast, and it came back down pretty fast as well, which is a little bit of a surprise to us, um, too. Now, when I presented you those two graphs, I think it's always very easy when you're sitting in a room like this to go, oh, yes, well, that's all very easy, and we've got a wonderful model, and we just said what was going on, and it was really very easy to make those decisions. But of course, when you're actually sitting in it, and you're in that tunnel, you don't, you don't really have that level of certainty. And so what we need to do then is bring this back with other sources of information and make sure that we are presenting to decision makers um, the appropriate level of confidence. So I showed you the uh, surveillance data and of course we have an awful lot of clinical experts sitting in UKHSA and so we brought that uh, knowledge and information together with our projections and with data from other sources and so we actually made an assessment then of what we thought was going to happen in the next two weeks, the probabilities around that and our confidence in that. And each uh, two weeks or each week actually we're able to then present that to uh, people sitting across the health service generally at the national level and those people were then able to say how many people um, how many beds they needed for flu and COVID patients and whether that was within the planning requirements. So I don't think we would say that we have uh, solved everything. That Obviously, the NHS is still under a, a lot of pressure. Um, but what we do have here is something that we find really helpful to that we can build on for future health hazards and future events and that approach of bringing together existing surveillance systems, the clinical knowledge, the operational knowledge with some modelling and forecasting was something that really helped us provide an extra bit of information to planners um, over the winter period. And I'll finish there. Thank you very much. And a reminder to those of you joining us online, if you'd like to put your questions to Sarah, it's bit.ly slash slidodb39 if you're not already on the Slido page, which by this point in the event, I'm sure you already are. Uh, let's start in the room for questions. Who'd like to go first? We'll come down here first, and I'll come to you next. Hi, uh, Valentina from Palantir. Um, so you mentioned the past hospital data and the hospital data coming from... Um, from Australia. Were there any other kind of perhaps more unusual sources, so linked information or leading indicators that you use to inform the model and help with the prediction? Yeah, so um, yes is the answer to that. So for our COVID model, which I, I haven't 
presented here um, today because I thought people would be sick of COVID at this point. But um, we actually use, uh, we found that the model which incorporates NHS 111 data and that it also uses uh, some Google Trends data is, is, is a bit better. And we do have a prototype that we're developing for flu, but it, um, as I said, the situation was so uncertain, we couldn't run it live um, in the kind of decision time points we had. Like if we had two flu seasons so we could run it over and then do another one, it would be perfect, yeah. Thanks, uh, we had a question over there. Thanks, Sam from Confidential. Uh, firstly, you know, all hazards intelligence sounds like the fun bit of UXA. Other speakers have implied that they can't do, you know, pretty graphs and modeling without expensive external contractors because they can't get the staff. How important is reproducible analytical pipelines to sort of what you've shown tonight? And do you have that flexibility or that flexible access and tools inside UXA? Okay, so a few different things there. Um, so we benefited massively um, from, from this work, from the investments that we had over the pandemic, and some of those people were private contractors that, that were brought in. So I think it's, I'm certainly, um, I wouldn't like to pretend that that's not there. Um, we do use like reproducible, reproducible pipelines in Git and have our code, and what I presented there is available as a preprint server, and we've submitted it to a publication. Um, and so, yes, I think those things are important and useful, um, and I definitely encourage them, and I'm very lucky to have fantastic people working with me who are incredibly motivated and go do this, but I would recognise um, one of the speakers saying it's just really hard to attract and retain talent um, within the public service um, because there's data science skills are wanted everywhere and everybody has an interesting problem. And I think we've benefited from having one of the most interesting problems over the last few years. Um, and we're now, I feel like we're uh, doubling down on that to get the benefits from it. Thanks. Um, let's stay in the room for the next question. I've got one down here. I'm Mikey, I work at Palantir as well. Um, I had a question on the relationship between your like organization and Australia and how that's continued to develop. Is there like a mutual sharing back as they go into seasons that we're in now or sort of how you see the future of that going forward? Um, so I, our, I would say that's mainly done, so there's a few different ways that's done. So we've got, obviously I'm not a flu expert. So our flu team, uh, who are flu experts know the flu experts in Australia and would be speaking to them all the time. And that's actually where we get a lot of information from. Um, the data that I was showing there from Australia, they publish their data online publicly, just as we publish our data online publicly. So a lot of the things that we do, we can just go and check. And then WHO and other uh, organizations like that also foster kind of data sharing and information sharing across the different countries as well. So there's a, kind of a few layers from the individuals who've known each other since the year dot right up to the big organisations. Thanks. I'll stay in the room. I've got one at the back. You mentioned the WHO. Are you working with the new Berlin hub? So I'm sure lots of people in Ux are doing a lot more on that than, um, than myself personally. So I'm involved just at a personal level on some of the modeling work on, on flu. There's an in, uh, interest group. And then we've got um, like people whose job it is to work on global strategy who are working with uh, WHO on a longer term basis. Great. Uh, who wants to go next? We've got one there. 
Hi, uh, Kit Brown, working Department of Health and Social Care. Uh, I noticed a lot of your data was uh, quite England only. Um, do you know if Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland collect their own data, or do you share that with Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland? Uh, so, yes, they do. Um, and we modelled on England because that was kind of the ask that came to us, and that's what I showed for flu. We um, have been doing some work on the COVID side for the Four Nation CMOs um, that we share with them, and we also... Um, the, Scotland and Wales, Northern Ireland have their own public health teams and do their own surveillance and so we would look at that as well as part to take a four nation view and some other work that we do. Thanks. I'm going to go online for the next one. This is another question from Greta. Thank you and all the other UXA team members for all the work you've done. How many different models did you compare before deciding on what to use when communicating the data or were you set on one type before the flu slash Covid season? Uh, we, I can't remember exactly how many, so I won't um, do my colleagues an injustice by pulling a number out, but we certainly went through a process of um, trying to basically go through a few to find the best one. And we were challenged by the fact that we, there wasn't a lot of data to train it on. So for the first few weeks of the flu season, we were slightly learning as we went. And so hence the simpler, more explainable model rather than trying to chuck the kitchen sink at it. I think if we had a longer season, more time, certainly we saw that with more of the COVID ways, we were able to adapt what we used um, to get a bit more best in class um, over time. Thanks. Uh, let's come back to the room for the next question. Uh, we've got one down here. Uh, hi, Vignesh from Balance here as well. Um, I had a question about kind of actualization in the sense that you were giving two-week forecasts potentially to the different trusts of potential flu numbers. Um, was there any analysis done in terms of, let's say, we ordered extra beds for, for, for flu? How many of those beds did get used for, for flu? So we were working at the national level, so we could, we could go down to trust for COVID. And what we really were most interested in for flu was at, at the level down from national, was at that regional. So are, are there regional disparities that we need to be worried about? Um, it actually went through that I think it was gen it was kind of feeding into broader planning assumptions that people were making and so we had I didn't get down into that detail of seven more beds or six more beds um, were being ordered that was thankfully not a situation we were in which was good we've got time for a final quick question who wants to ask it course La last question of the evening yes Steve Black again. Um, when you're building forecasting models, and I, I notice you're putting in sort of error bars, which is quite good practice, but do you get pressure from people to say, build me a much more complicated model to give me a more precise forecast? Uh, and in your experience of doing that, do the simpler models work better than the more complicated models? Uh, I think it depends. I, I would, I, I find with models that it, always best to start with the, what is the question that you're trying to answer. Sometimes a simple model will work best. Um, and sometimes you need something to be really, really explainable, which is more difficult when you've got a complicated model. Um, I would find that my experience of working with stakeholders is by taking the approach of starting with, this is the so what, this is what you need to know, and then only sharing as much as you really need to, and really explaining those uncertainty bars in terms of our confidence in them, and, and this, is, this is where we think you'll hit, um, has generally been sufficient. I 
think people, when you take the time, do understand that things are genuinely uncertain. And I think it's also good to be clear when things are uncertain because we literally don't know and we don't have the information and we haven't been in this situation before, or when things are uncertain because my data inputs aren't good enough. And I think sometimes we, as modelers, don't always explain the difference to, between those two things, and that can cause problems for you. Sarah, thank you very much indeed. Um, a few very quick parish notices before I let those of you in the building uh, enjoy some refreshment. Um, as I said, we do aim to have the video on the IFG website in the next 24 hours. Uh, you can also watch this back as live already on bit.ly slash slidodb39 or the IFG YouTube channel. And again, apologies if you were watching us online and had a few issues. You will be able to watch the whole thing in due course. Um, we'll be back with Data Bytes uh, on the 5th of April at 6pm on Wednesday again. The next IFG event uh, is on how can ob schemes be reformed and that's on Monday the 6th of March. If you go to the IFG website there are also events coming up on tax policy making, civil service recruitment, energy efficiency, the budget um, and if you're interested in tonight's subjects you will probably be particularly interested in the in conversation with Sir Patrick Valance and what artificial intelligence means for procurement. And while you're on the IFG website do check out uh, the latest performance tracker and our data sharing work which I mentioned earlier. Uh, all that remains for me to say are three very big thank yous. First of all to all of you for coming along tonight and for those of you watching watching us online, some great questions. Uh, a huge thank you to Palantir for supporting tonight's event. As I said, we do need uh, sponsors to keep the series going, so please do get in touch if you might be interested. And please join me in a final thank you to our four fantastic speakers this evening. Thank you very much indeed.